And we are in part four of our Galatians uh, chapter four study on the virgin birth, really better known as the virgin conception. And when we were in the Christmas season here, we were talking about that. What's the, what's the big deal about that? And the last few times we've looked at uh, the previous verse that talks about, uh, well, actually we'll pick it up and read it and then we'll make some comments here. But uh, from Galatians chapter four and in verse four, and this is the incarnation or the Christmas story, according to the Apostle Paul from the book of Galatians. He writes, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And we will pray. Lord, as we open up this study again tonight, we'd ask you to teach us. Remind us of some of those verses, Lord, that probably all of us have heard many times. And Lord, help us to put those deep in our hearts and mingle them with faith. And I pray even now that Jesus might be lifted up. We pray in his name. Amen. We looked at the first two points here on our outline, which was the reality of the virgin birth, and then the results of the virgin birth was a a two-part message um, with the deity of Christ, or the humanity of Christ, and then the deity of Christ. Last week we looked at the deity of Christ and the various verses of Scripture that deal with that fact that he was both 100% human, but yet 100% God. And that is a central doctrine to the Christian faith, because without it, you have someone who could not save us if he was merely human. Um, And with just being God, he could not enter into our race of people and redeem us in the flesh. And that's all part of the Christmas story. Uh, Although the virgin... uh, or the birth at Bethlehem really you know, begins way back at his conception because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, not of with an earthly father, and unique among all conceptions and births that have occurred in human history. Um, Galatians 4-5 is where we're going to go tonight. We're going to look at the reasons for the virgin birth, and this is just a rehash of some, I would say, some familiar verses that you probably have heard many times over, But I thought, you know what, it's always a good time to understand the reasons why Christ came. And ultimately, the reason is the gospel, that he came to save us from our sins. And that's what Galatians 4, 5 says, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And uh, just tonight when Eric was sharing a little bit there, and uh, he was just saying about how Christ purchased us with his blood. And he purchased us out of sin and, and out of Satan's clutches. And, uh, man, I tell you what, you had some good points there. You've got to preach that sometime. I'm telling you, excellent. No, but I'm just saying, but that's the truth, isn't it? He purchased us from sin. He redeemed us. That's what the word redemption means. He paid that price for us. And I mentioned that this morning, that that price was Jesus' life. And... He died on our behalf. That's a high price for us. He redeemed us, and he didn't redeem us just to take a sinner away from Satan and let him remain in his sin, but he redeemed us who were under the penalty of the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. He brought us into his family. And I think what a beautiful picture that is of the issue like of adopting someone into their family. And there are 
over the years I have met many families that have had uh, an adopted child. And it's kind of neat in some of the stories and where they come from. And we have some in our church that have adopted children. And I, I look at that and I think, Lord, you're good. That in your grace, you went and you found someone who didn't have a family. And you brought them into a family. Or changed their family sometimes. Sometimes they were in a horrible situation. And then later being in a good family. And what a a joy there is in that adoption. But when you adopt someone, bring them in. You give them a new name and a new identity. They become part of your family. And when Christ redeemed us under the law, we went from Adam's race of people into Christ's family. And we are redeemed by him. And we're in his family and we're adopted as sons and that's a legal term as much as it is a position a a practical term in that when uh, a son was brought into a family and that son the adult son had the full inheritance of his father and he says i'm redeeming you as adult sons into the family giving you all that is christ's all the riches of his blessings in him and all that is, is part of that. And the book of Ephesians is a good book to look at uh, in regard to the benefits that we get in adoption into God's family. Well, we find that that was necessary because, um, and, and I often think of this, why is it that God couldn't have used somebody else, right? Like, why didn't he use someone like a Moses who was an amazing leader and a man who could deliver an entire nation out of Egypt. And in many ways, Moses pictured a deliverer in his life and in his calling and all of that. Um, Or how about, we've been in the book of Joshua in the morning, a Joshua who is that commander, right, of, uh, of men and tribes of people and going out and doing that. And he was a born leader, really. And yet, uh, God didn't use a Moses or a Joshua or a David, right? Uh, David and you could go on or go back to Abraham great man of God and yet they all had one problem they were all sinners as great as they were in comparison probably to to people and you kind of we do that right we compare people and some people do great work sometimes not always good greatness but they do things that are influential and they certainly would rank up there in greatness in human terms but none of them could save us from our sin. They fell short of that. And really it goes back to the garden. And we were in need of redemption because we're born in a race of people um, Well, that has problems, right? Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. The Bible says, or Genesis, excuse me, 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden you may freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die that's one of the first well that's really the first negative promise in the bible if you eat of something this particular tree the fruit of it you're going to die and you know what man did we know the story right genesis chapter 3 He did the very thing God told him not to do. Uh, Often, and I have said this before as well, and and a lot of this is just stirring up by way of remembrance, but you often wonder, why is it that God did that? Why would he put one thing that man 
would touch or eat or whatever, and then all of a sudden, you know, the potential of sin coming into the human race. Why would he do that? And I think the short answer is very simply that even in a perfect, sinless world, God still wanted people to live by faith. He wanted them to trust him. He wanted them to do so in obedience, in a heart that wasn't tainted with sin, but he still wanted them to trust him, even in a perfect, unfallen world. And man fell and did not pass that test, for sure. But God was not done. He had a plan, even before that. We come to Romans in the New Testament, and he further explains that act that comes out of Genesis 3, the actual action of Adam and Eve partaking of the fruit of that forbidden, uh, that forbidden fruit as it often is termed, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Romans 5.12 it says, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. That is the theological position of what we call hermardiology, or the doctrine of sin. And that's exactly how sin came into this world, through Adam. It actually can trace it further back than that to Satan. Because somewhere in, well, between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when somewhere where angels are made in that creation, um, angels fell. And they fell before Genesis chapter 3. Don't know exactly the timing of all that, exactly what uh, time, on what day that happened, but angels Uh, about a third of the angels of the heaven, uh, went with Lucifer and were cast out of God's presence because he wanted to be like God. And you read of that in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Isaiah. I will be like the Most High. That's what uh, Lucifer said. And really, that's what Adam did too. He said, I know better, and I will be like God. And that was the promise Satan gave him in Genesis 3. You'll be like God's knowing good and evil. Same lie, same one. Sin enters in from Satan to man, and man does the same exact thing that angels did. They rejected God or, or you know, disobeyed in that way, and they fell. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And that is the position we have. Every single one of us is a sinner. Whether you think you're a great sinner or a small sinner, you're a sinner. Some people don't think they're a sinner, but that indicates they are, just because they deceive themselves, right, Um, in that. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, one of the great things about the Bible in God's specific revelation is that it reveals to us just how bad sin is. And how we are in comparison to who God is. This book tells us that he's a holy God. And he does not tolerate sin. And he has to deal with it fairly. Which is just judiciously. And its wages, its payment is always death. The payment for sin requires someone to die. And that is the death sentence that's in us. And it's both in us physically, it's in us spiritually. Just as physical death separates us from the people we love uh, and we're sad, so spiritual death separated man from God. And it brought great sadness to this world, doesn't it? And it continues to do so. He goes on, and the law and the prophets, that's the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, the law and the prophets reveal to us that we don't have the righteousness of God. 
Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now it does reveal that it's possible to have righteousness and it's through only through faith in Christ. And you get his righteousness. That's the doctrine of justification or the declaration of righteousness. And uh, we said like we're covered in the blood of Christ. And I would say yes we are. But we, it goes even further than that. That we're not only just covered and redeemed in that sense, that was the purchase price, but we're declared righteous. The old sin penalty is removed forever. And that's what that idea of redemption brings out of Galatians chapter 4 verse 5. And then he says, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. And then he goes on in a verse we're familiar with, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us need the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness of God because we've sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And I can just, and this is, again, maybe a very familiar illustration, but if I was to ask all of you to, to try to you know, jump, you know, stand up and jump as high as you can jump, there will be some in here that can jump higher than others. You know? But if I could say, all right, somebody stand up and jump and hit that light, I don't think any of you could do it. Some of you would come closer than others. I might get a running start and try it. I don't know how I'd land, but, you know, you can picture that. But I would fall short, I can guarantee you. And so would you. And how much more so, the glories of heaven, the perfection of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and little old men, men and women, boys and girls, we try to jump and say we're like God. Think how crazy that is. That's why he says we fall short. Every single one of us. That falling short brings with it a condemnation. And the book of John chapter 3 verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Um, the reason Christ came is not just to, he didn't come to condemn. He didn't come to say, you wicked sinners. I mean, preachers are really good at that, right? And they throw things and get all upset and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes that's people's idea of Christianity. And um, he came to pay for sin. And the Bible goes on to say this, but that the world through him might be saved. The reason Jesus came into this world is to save people. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. So by default, the position we come into this world in is lost and condemned. That's the default position. And we need to not be condemned. How are you not condemned? He who believes in him is not condemned. It's the act of trust and faith in his son. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. There's no other way to be saved. That's it. And I know that sounds harsh from our perspective. We'd say, surely God would make some other way too. Because what about all those people who, they don't know that. What if they don't know that Jesus came to die for their sins? They've never heard the gospel. And by the way, some of those could be right here in our neighborhood. Some might have come to church, you know, uh, and they've never heard a clear explanation of the gospel. And there's a generation, every, you know, person that's born has to come up and hear. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's the only way. And by default, we are lost and that's not God's fault. That's our fault because we're sinners. And Christ has done everything for us. And by the way, he wants us to be involved in the going and the telling. Very simple, isn't it? 
Isaiah chapter 64 talks about our righteousness on our own. And by the way, we're, we're good at this, aren't we? We're good at looking left and right and around us and we're saying, well, I'm not as bad as that person. I spent a lot of years, especially my teenage years, looking around and thinking, well, I'm surely not as bad as that guy. And I don't need to be changed. And I remember arguing with a Christian friend. I was not a believer. And I was saying, well, I'm not really that bad, you know. And yet I knew I was bad. And I knew I was good at hiding stuff. That was big. And my parents thought I was a lot better than I was. But uh, I often look back and, and I think, Lord, I'm thankful that you revealed to me just what my heart was really like. And the book of Isaiah talks about that. This is from God's perspective. But we are all like an unclean thing. We're we're unclean. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. The position of man is that our iniquity, our sin, has taken us away. Taken us away from God, but it also takes us away from everything that's good and alive. Eventually, death comes and visits us. And our righteousness, our best of righteousness, is like filthy rags. Now, from our perspective, it might not be. Our perspective, sometimes we look and we think, wow, that person is so devout, right? They, they go to a church or they go to some holy site or they do these acts and they, they seem to pay for their sins and they are, try to live honest and live by the golden rule and all of that. And, and God says that doesn't amount to hill of beans, really, without the righteousness of Christ. It's that stark a contrast from filthiness. Even our best of good things is filthy compared to the righteousness of Christ. I kind of thought of it like this. Because we're good at uh, sometimes hiding stuff and sin and not dealing with it the way we should. And and sometimes sin can be very appetizing, can't it? How many people like chocolate chip cookies? Come on. We like chocolate, especially right out of the oven, right? Nice, warm chocolate chip cookies. You can smell them cooking, you know. And they come out and they're soft and gooey and just right. And you eat them. And, you know, there was a woman who used to make these cookies. They were just absolutely fantastic cookies. Everybody loved her cookies. And they would just line up, you know, in the kitchen, just waiting for her cookies to come out of the oven. As they stood there, they would watch her put in the ingredients, and there would be the ingredients of chocolate chip cookies. What's in chocolate chip cookies? We got what? We got flour, butter, sugar. You need chocolate in there, right? You, you got to do that. And then there was some secret ingredients, you know, everybody's got their own recipe. And then you got to follow a recipe. You can't just throw it in the oven for two hours. No, nope, it's a certain amount of time. You got to do it just right. And, and those that can make cookies or bake or cook or whatever, they know that. They have. They have patterns they have to do, and things come out, and man, everybody's like, that's great. Only one thing. This lady had a little secret. You see, when she would go into the pantry, she would go and get the flour, and sometimes she'd see this critter, this rat. And there was a rat in the pantry. And the rats do what rats do. He got into the flour, and he was eating some of the flour, and he left some of his little chocolate bits in there. Oh, boy. Well, this dear lady, she thought, well, then, you know, I'll just, it's a good bunch of flour. I don't want to throw out all that flour. Why waste that? So she just kind of sifted through things and took out, you know, most of it. 
took the flour back, brought it out in the kitchen, put it right in that bowl and mixed it all up. Cooked her chocolate chip cookies. Now, how many of you would want to eat those cookies? If you knew where those came from. Yeah, there's always one. I'll try it, you know. I don't think anybody would want to eat those cookies if you knew what had been in the flour. Now, you might even be able to get away with it because, you know, you might not taste anything different. It might be just like, you know, this isn't that bad. Maybe it would be a little off, something. But maybe, you know, over time, you'd think that's normal. But you know what? We come to this whole idea of redemption the same way. You see, religion tells us, hey, look at this beautiful cookie. Isn't it great? Oh, it tastes good. It smells good. It'll change you. You know, you go and you'll look like me and I'll smell better. And uh, No. You know, in down deep, it's still, until the sin is dealt with, it's, you're still a sinner. Whether it's a little bit of sin or a lot of sin, we're sinners. And we have fallen short of the glory of God. And our righteousness is failing. By the way, the FDA, which, you know, governs our food, they're our Food and Drug Administration, allows for a certain amount of rat droppings and mouse droppings and hair and other things in cookies. And it's a certain limit they have in their criteria of what governs baking commercially. I'm glad I don't ever analyze that stuff, but they must every now and again. But the reality is this, and hopefully you don't, you know, stop eating chocolate chip cookies, but... But, but I'll just say it this way. Sometimes from God's perspective, he knows exactly what's in there for the ingredients. The rest of us might think it looks pretty good. Everything about it looks good, but it's sin. And sin needs to be dealt with. The writer in the book of Hebrews deals with that, and he talks about all the offerings that took place. And, and these were things that God told them to do. And he told them to go through these rituals for the Jewish people. And yet, you come to the book of Hebrews, and the writer here seems to throw water on that. Because he says this, he says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Think about that. You read through your Bible, and I hope you are reading through your Bible this year. And you come to those books of Moses, and like in particular the book of Leviticus, and you think of all the requirements under the law, and the offerings that had to be made, and there was you know the trespass offering, the sin offering, there were all these different things they had to do, and procedures they had to do, and they had to go through a priest to do it. And that happened over and over and over and over again, daily, over and over again, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And here, under Holy Spirit inspiration, the Bible tells us those things could never take away sin. So you ask, why, why was it that God wanted them to do that? Because God wanted to show them a pattern. And he wanted to do so in belief. He says, I'm not going to tell you how this works, but I want you to do this. And when they obeyed God, they were, by faith, trusting him. And that's really all he wants us to do, is to, by faith, trust him. I don't know exactly how he takes and makes me declared righteous or removes my sin as far as the east is from the west. The Bible tells me he does. But if I trust him and believe, that's the act of faith, 
He says it's so. But I like what this verse goes on to say, or this passage, but this man, capital M there, that's referring to Jesus. By the way, he had to be a man. That's that born of a woman part of Galatians 4.4, under the law. This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And there it is, my friends. Forever. My sin is dealt with. No more need of a priest to go into a temple somewhere and offer a sacrifice or to take a lamb and slay it uh, and, you know, confessing your sins of the people on it and then your sins or your sins first, then the sins of the people. Remember, that was the pattern in the Old Testament. And then they were to slay the lamb in such a way that it was bled out. A picture, really, of the one who is our lamb, the lamb of God, who is Christ, and he was bled out for us. But his sacrifice was different because it was once. Perfected once. Love it. Back to Romans 5.17. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in, the life, in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore... As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. In Adam, condemnation. In the second Adam, Christ, he came in our, in our race of people, right? Humanity. His act of righteousness was enough. Oh, thank you, Lord goes on to say, Paul says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And that speaks again of the position we have in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. By the way, he could not bear our griefs and carry our sorrows without being human. And he... And, and I say that because without being human and being God. See, he took all the griefs and sorrows that have ever been experienced. I'm not called to bear everybody's grief. I couldn't do it. I have a hard enough time with mine. I couldn't bear everybody's sorrows. There's no way I could do it. Because I'm just a man. But he was man, but God too. And that hypostatic union that divinity and humanity aspect allowed him to bear our griefs and to carry our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by god and afflicted and he was because where the wrath of god abides on us he took the wrath of god at the cross and he took our condemnation but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Thank you, Lord, for that. He's like that. I'm glad that Jesus... 
who knows what sin is like because it was laid upon him, I thank, I, I'm thankful that he was the one that was able to bear it. And he was the one that was able to do so having no sin. See, he had to be outside of this sinful race. And that's that beautiful picture. To redeem those who were under the law, right? He had to do it. The Bible talks about this sinless nature of Christ. Peter says, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. John says, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. And then Paul, how about Paul? He writes, for we made him, or for he made him, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He knew no sin. He did no sin. In him there was no sin. Sin didn't come from Christ. Salvation came from Christ. I'm thankful for that. Who by himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Again, the testimony of the apostle in that. When Jesus Christ came, and as the sinless Son of God, he died on the cross, he redeemed us from the curse of the law and the curse of sin. And he purchased us out of slavery and brought us into his own family. That's really what it it means there. And that part of redemption that referred to adoption there, it it means just that. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from the aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. In other words, it wasn't purchased with money, as so much is, right? If we were talking about the idea of redemption of a slave, you were able in the ancient times to purchase someone out of slavery. And where, by the way, there's still human trafficking going on out there, and there's still people enslaved. And the only way they ever get out is if they escape that somehow, or someone pays for them to get out. That still happens in a cursed, sinful world. Sadly. But the kind of act of salvation Christ paid for wasn't bought with money. It wasn't bought with tradition or religion in that strict aspect of it. He did not do something like, you know, we all have our traditions, right? And sometimes we do it in Christianity with all our different traditions. And it wasn't because he went through some motion or some sacrament, or some act, or anything like that. He did it with his blood. It says, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Why? To redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And Paul talks more about that, and this echoes what he says also in Galatians, in the verses that follow Galatians 4, 5. But back there in Romans, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You were, by redemption and adoption, were brought into a new relationship where now we can intimately know God. 
I would just say this, that when I got saved, the, the, when I trusted Christ back in 1988, and I knew when that happened, because immediately I thought differently about the Lord. I became alive unto Him in ways I had never been alive before. And there were entire weeks that I would go and I really didn't give him much thought. And I used his name in vain and used it as a curse word and and never gave it any thought. And then all of a sudden, I trusted him after I I said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need you. And I just prayed and I said, Lord, come into my life and live it for me. And I trusted him. And I remember that very day, May 8th, 1988, Sunday morning, and uh, out in just south of Winterville, and when Mountain View Bible Church used to meet in a little potato field over there, in a little one-room schoolhouse, had been that one time, and immediately I knew something was different. Not because I saw lightning or anything like that, or heard voices from heaven, but I all of a sudden was aware of God in a way I'd never been aware before. I went from the spirit of bondage and fear to the spirit of God. And I was able to go to the Lord now and know him as an intimate friend and an intimate father. Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And that was the clearest indication in my life that, that I was truly born again, is that all of a sudden I knew something was different on the inside. Sometimes, and then there are things changed on the outside too. Boy, I did a lot of things that I stopped doing. Um... But that wasn't the biggest indicator for me. That was because I tried to do those things before. And sometimes I fooled people. But I knew what was in the inside. And when the inside changed, I knew it was real. And if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And oh, I could go on and on about stuff. But that's the beauty of salvation. And that's the reason for the virgin birth. And the reason for Christmas. And the reason for all those things. Let's pray. Lord, we do come again before you. We thank you, God. Thank you for who you are. Thank you, Lord, that you are the one who paid the only price that could be paid. And you were the only one that could. And Lord, I pray that people would come to saving faith in you in these days. They would understand the simplicity of the gospel, not complicate it with tradition and with works of righteousness which could never take away sin, but just throwing themselves before Christ. Thank you, you did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through you might be saved. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.